Hello and welcome back everybody to the OrthoTalk podcast. This week is episode number 26. We have a very special guest with us, Dr. Mark Foreman. Dr. Foreman was a program director in the University of Texas Medical Branch at Gallison. He was Jay and I's program director for I think three years while we were there and he is the current program director there. So obviously we talk about what you would want to talk about with the program director applying to orthopedic residency and uh, things that go into picking an applicant. But we also talk about his life, how he got his purple heart, his journey into academic orthopedics and uh, stuff on surgical philosophy and, you know, all things like that. So give it a listen. Hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, Dr. Mark Foreman. Hey, can we time out? All right, all good dudes, stop what you're doing. This is Time Out. This is the OrthoTalk podcast. Today we are doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest. Surgeons today are Asad Khalid and Jay Chen. Antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask? Fire risk, high due to lit conversations and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. Welcome to the Ortho Talk podcast. We have with us this week, episode 26, we have Dr. Mark Foreman. He is the current program director at the University of Texas Medical Branch. He was our former program director as well, and now I'm proud to call him my partner. And I also call him Master Splinter because he's the he's the old wise man out of all of us. So welcome aboard, Dr. Foreman. Hey, thanks, Jay. How have you been doing? Been doing good. Everything's been going great so far. Um, so I think it's very timely to have you on this week uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Last week was was Veterans Day, and obviously uh, you served as well. So so there's that, and also as a program director, today was the OITE, the Orthopedic In Training Exam, and you were you were around for that as well. So. Yes, it was a blast. Oh yeah. Did you, so. did you take it this year? No, they don't let us take it. They they don't like the pro. They give us a complimentary copy, but it doesn't come in for another four weeks. So I just oh. sort of sit there and eat uh, and drink coffee and make sure people aren't. Uh, you know, cheating, that kind of thing. Were you there the whole time? I was there just till about, uh, till about four o'clock. I came over here for this podcast. My goodness. Our uh, program coordinator, Stephanie Thame is doing a great job. She's fi- finishing up over there. Uh, of course, the usual suspects finished first. Uh, <laughs> we know who those folks are. Peter yeah. Adamson. People are like Peter Addison. <laughs> yep. So anyway, no, so it, it's interesting. Once a year, we get to do this ritual. And uh, for better or for worse, it's part of the curriculum. So, what, do you, what are your thoughts on uh, the importance of the exam and, and what, what it means to do well in the exam? Well, uh, like anything else, it's a benchmark for where you're at on your with regards to your your orthopedic fund of knowledge, and it it may not necessarily uh, uh, correlate directly with your clinical knowledge and your in a clinical setting, but it does correlate with your uh, board score. So, in general, if you have a in training score of I hate to say this because people are going to try to shoot for 20%, but you have a, if, you, if you can make better than 20% on your end training, there's a good chance you're going to pass your, your written boards, which is a, a, a big, a big uh, thing. So I think it's helpful. You know, when I was in medical school, we did the same thing. We just studied exam after exam question after exam question. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a little tedious, but I think it's just one, one more benchmark for you to have, just like a step one or step two score. We have with us a notoriously low scorer, Dr. Khalid. <laughs> no, no, um, multiple time low scorer. Multiple time low scorer. <laughs> repeat, low, repeat offender. We get, we get people, we, you know, that's the beauty about this program. We, it's, it's really, we have the diversity. We can, see, we can see two ends of the spectrum right now. 
We've got, we've got a single digiter and we've got a you know a double digiter right? Hang, hanging out with us. Uh, the, I hit the double digits. I wouldn't say I've been double digits top, before. I hit the double digits. <laughs> <laughs> one, uh, one year when we were, I think, PGY threes, me, threes, Dr. Khalid, yeah. and Dr. Williams scored the exact same score. All three of us scored 57%. Yep. We may or may not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> sketchy happened, but it was very funny how the three of us all scored the same score. Yeah. yeah. And I think one year, half of our class scored single digits i think we had it was, it was weird we had a weird four year span the beauty uh. about uh, the beauty about that is is when you know every year as a uh, program director we have to report how our in-training went as well as our you know our, our part one and part two of our boards and um luckily they don't ask you what percentage that your people passed by yeah yeah you just gotta you know, it's good. no different than walking <laughs> to the doctor's office and they say uh you, you know you're the best orthopedic surgeon i know and by the way um what 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 was your you know what was your your rank in medical school? They, they you know it was a matter you have a C or an A, uh, probably yeah. not, right? P, P equals MD, right? Yeah, yeah. P equals MD. Yeah, so, the three A's, right? Affability, yeah. ability, av availability, and ability. <laughs> yeah. So what what strategies are there as a program director that we can improve kind of the OIT scores from year to year? What things can we do to to improve those? Well, I think what, what you guys started, uh, you know, back when you were here and, and Ken Lamb and those guys, I think a, a, an hour long uh, resident led session with, with going over as many questions as you can, ortho bullets uh, or the uh, AOS resident study, which we do, all those things. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a weekly process, just like uh, when I was training, you know, one of, my, one of my mentors said, you know, in order to keep up with orthopedics, you need to read at least an hour a day, which I don't. But in general, it's, a, it's one of those things we had to keep up with it weekly. You, know, you can't just mm -hmm. cram three months prior. It's got to be something you do on a routine basis. And you got to involve your colleagues so you can have some buy-in. Did, did you guys take the test altogether this year? Yeah, we just, uh, we, we did the same as we used to do over in the library. Yeah. Yeah, because I yeah. think some some places, I guess it depends on what state you're in, but you know they're doing home testing and like. Oh no, no, we have the, every every program had the option of doing it uh, doing it in person or virtual. And the last thing I wanted was 25 residents uh, yeah. from all over, and you know having problems with their software, having those issues. So it was yeah. much much more much more uh, um, user friendly to have everybody in one spot and with all the all, everything was fine. We had all all the precautions. We all had lunch, you know, so it's, it's, it's good. We're going to do the same, hopefully, with our uh, interview process, too. Oh, really? So, yeah. so all no the faculty will be, will be in, in, the, in the building, nice. uh, in our own separate, uh, obviously, its own separate offices, and we'll Zoom from here. But that, you know, once again, it, 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 builds, it builds a little camaraderie. At the end of the day, we have to get together anyway for our rank list and all those things. Mm -hmm. So, Cool. I've always, I've kind of heard that program directors kind of, use their OIT average or scores kind of as a almost like a measuring stick against other program directors is there any of that going on behind the scenes where you're like oh you know here at UTMB my resident scored this and your resident scored that or is that just hearsay I've never talked to anybody about the, their in training exams uh, so I, I, I may be an outlier but nobody's ever asked me and I've never asked anybody what they did in their training exams I, I do we do uh, sometimes on the cord meetings and whatnot discuss other other issues but that's not one of them it's it really it's really comes down to board pass rate once again yeah you, I could give a I could care less what you score in your training exam as long as you know well enough to, to, to pass your 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 
your uh, um, written boards, right? And so that yeah. the, the, once again, that's that's the key. Everything else is gravy. Absolutely, Jay. Did you think that? Did you think that it correlates? It probably does. I don't know. It was weird. I had a weird situation where I scored better on my OITs for like three or four years than I did on my actual board exam. So I don't know what happened to my board. I passed, but it was probably one of the lower scores. If you combine all the scores that I took, all my in-trainings and my boards, my board score is one of the lower ones out of all the tests I've taken. So it didn't correlate very much for me, but I think I had a weird situation where I just, uh, I don't know. I, if it's possible to overstudy, I think I overstudied to the point the where boards. I was my board and I was just like, not really, not really feeling it too much, but yeah, it did not correlate for me very much. I think the uh, I think the process probably correlates the most. Like just yeah. being able to sit down and and do the studying for the OIT or for the board exam. But the, the actual questions in the board exam were a lot, I think, more fair than yeah. the OIT questions. Uh, there seemed yeah. to be a lot less controversial than you know, like like which way, which of the hundred ways is the right way to fix a bunion, right? It was yeah. just, I know that one easy. It's pentacortical fixation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Until decacortical comes out. <laughs> Tell you, anchors, that's the key. Just put a couple anchors in there. You'll yeah. be fine. No, I thought I don't know. I, I, I thought it correlated a little bit, but I don't I don't know. Uh, I think the process is what correlates the most. That's exactly right. It's getting yeah. in the in the in the study habits, right? Yeah. That's that's the key. And if you do that, then everything else, once again, should come come along. If you're smart enough to get into orthopedics, uh, you, you should be smart enough to pass your boards. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what the board pass rate is now. It must be it's what? Still, like, it's still over 90, like 94% yeah. or something. So That's pretty good. And I think I think the, or, the oral boards are even higher than that now, right? I think it's like- Well, it, it certainly is this year. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Nobody's taken <laughs> Nobody's this year. If you just did your research pretty recently, how did that go? What, so what's uh, the process for the research for everyone? Well, I, 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 I hate to, I don't want to jinx myself, but I, I, I'm, I'm really sort of mad at myself for studying so much. <laughs> I mean, I literally went through all, you know, the essays. I took a, a, a maintenance certification um, um, virtual Zoom meeting with AOS and went through all their high yield lectures and did all those things. And uh, I, I probably could have walked in there cold and taken it and done almost as well. It was just, it was remarkably mundane. I, and I hmm. guess that's a good thing. That's a, yeah. you know, wasn't any spine on it. There wasn't any, hardly any pediatrics. There wasn't any, uh, very little oncology. It was really general orthopedics. It was, it was bread and butter, general orthopedics. And of course I didn't do any subspecialty recertification. So, um, and so for, in that sense, um, I, you know, got another, hopefully I'll find out in December whether or not, whether or not I pass, but it was, uh, I, it was much, I'd rather do that than, than, uh, go online and, and then read three articles and then take a test and three months later, go online and do it again. So yeah, that's, the, that's the other option, right? Is, is you pick out a, yeah. a few articles and one is longitudinal assessment, long, uh, web-based longitudinal learning. Which is which is uh, which is a once again sort of a process where every I believe it's every three to six months you go in and, and once again read some articles and then take a take an open book test but uh, which is fine too it costs exactly interestingly enough yeah. so huh. yeah. I remember seeing some guys who are going to research at our um, at our AOS uh, board review Dr. Cormo you remember that there's some yeah yeah some older guys over there they're, they're research so yep. that that's it's uh, going all out and studying as well. Yeah, I think that's probably a waste of time. But it, once again, part of it is I've got I've got the luxury of being in, in an academic setting. So, you know, unlike sometimes when you're in private practice where you don't really get any of this stuff, what we get 
you know, I get this stuff weekly. So um, in that sense, I probably have a little bit of an advantage. Gotcha. So, so Dr. Foreman, you, you completed your residency training, you know, at San Antonio a while back. You elected not to do a fellowship. You went to private practice, correct? Correct. What were your, what were your kind of thoughts in your career at that time? You know, how do you see your career going? Uh, well, I thought I was just going to go into private practice in a small little rural town in Southern Oregon and work for 20 years and retire. Life <laughs> changes. Life changes. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I trained in the time where it was, it, it was the opposite. You know, now about 80% of people are doing fellowships. When I was uh, in 98, when I graduated, before they had volar lock plating um, <laughs> and other things like CDs and internet uh, and cell phones, um, we, uh, we, yeah, all those things, impact systems. So you had to go to the hospital to actually look at the freaking x ray to know whether or not what type of hip fracture it was in order to fix it back in the day of the dinosaurs. But uh, at, back then, um, about 80% of the people that came out of residency went directly into private practice. So just did gen general ortho. And I think that, you know, that, that that has evolved over the years. I think like everything else, things have really become subspecialized for a lot of the things we do. And I still think there's a role for it. I think there's a big role for general orthopedists in, in private practice in rural settings and even, even, even urban. But I think, you know, if you're gonna do something, uh, spine, those kind of things, I think those deserve deserve uh, subspecialties, obviously foot and ankle, et cetera. Um, I think you can still get, you know, if you want to be a, if you want to be a general orthopedist, I think there's a role for that, but that's what I did. So I went out in private practice. I found a little town in Southern Oregon. Actually my, my, uh, uh, I, how I got there, my, my, um, a guy I was working with named Larry Trick. He was, a, he was, had been there for years. He had, he had a good friend named Warren Kendall. Warren Kendall had come from San Antonio and, and opened up practice up in Southern Oregon in Grants Pass. And I was looking for uh, somewhere to practice, and he was going to be retiring. So, I interviewed in two places: one in one in Portland, and one in one in Southern Oregon, and and uh, that was it. So I, I sort of fell into his practice. He he quit on July the fifteenth, and I started on August the first. It was a it was a very smooth transition. It was great for me. I, my, my clinic was busy right away, and I had lots of lots of cases to do. Did you have a lot of partners right off the bat, or were you kind of one of a few? No, it was a, it was a four man group. So he was he was the old he was the older of the of the group, and he retired. So I came in. There, and we had one general guy, one one uh, sports guy, one uh, and one uh, one total joint guy. Actually, one of the guys was hand. But so it was a, it was a very well established practice that I that I joined. And um, of course, like everything else, things change. So our practice split up in two thousand and two thousand two thousand and one. We sort of we all stayed in town, but we went in separate ways. Me and one of the partners built a building across from the hospital, and we practiced until two thousand and ten. Which case, I decided at the time, I decided earlier to get back to Texas, trying to get back to Texas. I'm from East Texas. My wife is from Oregon. It took me about seven years to convince her to move to Texas, but she saw the light eventually. Now she loves <laughs> it down here, right? She actually enjoys Galveston. You know, we were in San Antonio and. She admit, you know, in Oregon, you, you can't get in, you can't go anywhere without looking at water somewhere, whether it's a river mm -hmm. or a creek or stream or, or the ocean. And so, you know, she sort of missed that in San Antonio. We love the hill country, but, you know, it's sort of somewhat nice to be able to, to look or go over the causeway and, and uh, be close to water again. So she's actually really enjoying being down here in Galveston. So when you were, when you were in private, did you guys own your own ancillaries, own your own building, like the whole, whole gamut, have all that kind of stuff? Revenue so, well, yeah so i tell you that's that's where if you know if you're going in the one advantage of private practice 
is the ability to do that is to own your own ancillary services. So mm-hmm. we built our building large enough to accommodate a physical therapy de- uh, um, um, practice uh, next to us. And mm-hmm. we didn't, we didn't own, we didn't, um, they didn't know work for us, but they actually rented part of the building from us. Yeah. So that was an indirect way to, to cover the overhead. And, and uh, we had a great partnership because we could just, I mean, it was great. We could send them right next door and mm-hmm. they were really good at what they did. So that was, a, that was a, a great way to cover the overhead. Um, and then uh, we also had a surgery center in town, which everybody who worked there had the ability to buy shares into the surgery centers. We didn't, we didn't have an imaging center because the hospital had sort of dominated that process. Some, there was an imaging center uh, that some of the people had, had, uh, had uh, invested in, but yeah, ancillary services is, is where it's at, you know, working as a surgeon um, is a great, you know, surgery, doing the surgery itself helps pay the bills mm-hmm. and uh, helps, uh, helps, um, help you do what you w- get, where you really make your money. It's like a car wash. Yeah. It's the, the passive income streams that, that really provide, uh, provide your retirement. Yeah. No, that, I think you could, I mean, some of that stuff is reflected in your practice. I mean, that's what I saw. Like some of the efficiency sure. stuff, the cost savings, uh, like, like billing the, coding tricks and what? Billing and coding tricks that we picked up. Yeah, all that little yeah. stuff, like uh, like yeah. picking up the you know the little little codes here and there to uh to maximize your revenue stream. But even like operatively, like you know the hand tables, keeping the hand table on the stretcher instead of transferring to the bed, and you know all those little things that you could tell in a surgery center. Those are the things that will save you time and you know. Oh, you know everything we do. Case. Everything you do is is uh, it, you know you have uh, it, you have to look at cost effectiveness, right? So so when I. <laughs> Uh, when I when we start looking at carpal tunnels here, yeah, obviously leaving a patient on a stretcher is huge. <clears throat> Using a handle that goes on the stretcher that saves time, that saves work, comp claims when people cause back pain, all that crap. Mm-hmm. And then you know, we, if you look at your carpal tunnel, um, you need about six instruments. Mm-hmm. So I mean, literally, so I have a carpal tunnel tray with six instruments on it, and uh, and you know how it, t- it takes about probably uh, one fiftieth amount of time to sterilize that than one big ass tray full of two hundred. Yeah never use right do you, do you know all six instruments yeah you know rag nail i have pickups i have a scalpel i have met blunt tip medicine bomb scissors all right maybe have a second pair because i drop one that's it yeah that's all need for a carpal tunnel or a trigger finger it's a set of five and you know it's very easy to uh, very easy to sterilize and process so the other thing you look at is your expendables right so mm-hmm. uh if you look at the cost of a eshmark bandage it is three dollars hmm. you extrapolate that for whatever 100 carpal tunnels a year you know, bucks. not much until you add it all up. But those are all, as I, I refer to that sometimes, those are all golden crumbs that are just sitting on the table. <laughs> you can use it. You can use your A-shraft that you're going to use on your final dressing for it, for mm-hmm. if you're going to exanguinate something, right? Yeah, that's true. Lots and lots of ways of cost saving, which we don't think about. But when tell you, when you're a private practice and you you have 75 shares in the surgery center mm-hmm. and their profit's your profit, you're pretty cost effective. Yeah. Do you think uh, working in an academic center, do you think some of those habits have slipped or are you still keeping up all those habits, those cost-effective habits? I try to do as much as I can. Um, you know, sometimes you get thwarted by the, by the, by the system, but uh, you know, cost part of the, the part of the biggest thing about being cost-effective is not necessarily what you use, which can be, it's how much time you spend in the OR. So I think being a very efficient surgeon and I hope to always try to train you, train, train the residents, how to do that. I always, I always tell them, you know, it's about it's a matter about being efficient. It's not a matter about being speedy. There's two different things. When you start getting speedy and you start trying to trying to do things fast, you make mistakes, and that actually slows you down. So efficiency in the OR is is uh, I think that is probably the biggest thing you can learn. Absolutely. 
So when you when you made the decision to go to San Antonio and, and do academics, were you is that is teaching something you wanted to do for a while, or is this something that just happened to be a decent opportunity that you jumped at? Yeah, no, I wasn't planning on teaching. Yeah. So I, I, when I uh, when I when I decided to move back to when we decided to move back to Texas, which is around 2007, we were our kids were getting out of high school, and, and the economic socioeconomics in Southern Oregon was hor was dismal, 16 percent. Um, unemployment rate at yada yada back in 2007 and eight. And so we started looking back Texas again, all my family's down here. And so, you know, I trained in San Antonio. I knew the guys at the university. I still knew that uh, I still knew the head of the, of the trauma division on Mesh Agarwal. We'd been residents together. I knew a lot of the people there. So when I came back, I, I said, Hey, you know, I'm looking to be a general orthopedist in San Antonio. And I just came out of private practice for 10 years. I thought I'd take a break, take a break out of the private practice setting and just join a join a big group that uh you know that that at the end of the day if if i decided to spend a year there and go i wouldn't have have to do all the things that you have to do in private practice which is maintain your charts for 10 years and have you know have an occurrence claim and tails claim and all, all the insurance and all those things so i thought i'd land somewhere where i could cut i could cut and run easy if mm -hmm. it didn't work out and i didn't you know and and uh, so I, they i luckily got a job at the with the university in in san antonio and uh you know, after about, after about a year, I realized actually it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I, I didn't realize I, I would enjoy it that much. So, and I had the opportunity to go from, uh, go from general orthopedist to work on the trauma service with, uh, with two of the other, three of the other guys. And that really, really, I think reinvigorated my practice because in, you know, in a small town in Southern Oregon, we did a lot of cases, but we didn't have a lot of level two trauma, level one. And of course, San Antonio, as you know, uh, tremendous amount. So, so, so in a the long, long, long story short, it was uh, something I wasn't expecting, but it's been a, a absolutely uh, a gratifying experience. Some of the uh, we had some guests on previously, uh, Dr. Amendola and some other ones. We we asked about, you know, why why they changed practices, and and a lot of times the reason was because their old job things kind of got stale, and they were looking for for new challenges in a way. And you know, I think going from private to teaching in a big university system, doing a lot of trauma, you know, in my mind, that's, that's kind of a, a large new challenge that might just, you know, reinvigorate someone or keep it interesting. So I was wondering for you, you know, maybe that was part of it as well. You just liked it so much. Well, yeah, you know, I sort of fell into that trauma job. Once again, I got lucky because of, because of my relationship I had known pre previously. Um, and, uh, you know, just having that, having that, uh, that high volume experience was tremendous. I mean, I, I essentially got to do a, a mini fellowship uh, for for you know for quite a while until I got back to doing those things. So it, it absolutely changed my uh, changed my practice. Yeah, and and uh, and you know it, when your private practice is sort of one of those things where you know we, we I was I say stuck in a rut, but you know you, your days are your days. Tuesday you have your you know your two total joints followed by a carpal tunnel, whatever it was. Wednesday's your business meeting. Thursday you're in clinic all day. And then Monday you do it all again. So it is, it is a, a there's a lot more variability, certainly um, being in an academic center. And, it, you know, the thing is working with, working with young people. So, you know, no matter, uh, we here, here in Galveston or in San Antonio, um, the, the, I learned something every day from the residents that I would have never thought of myself. And I think it's like being in a college town. You just have to, you get to hang out with the cool kids that never that, <laughs> And you, but you get to you get to hang out and you get to learn things and you know they can they get to learn from your experiences and all the things that you screwed up and things maybe that you've done well and and I, I swear I get to learn you know every day from you guys so I think it's a 
win-win situation and keeps things lively. Absolutely. So then you, you know, a couple years later, I guess, you came over to Galveston to become our program director over here. And that's, that's, I guess that was kind of a new challenge for you. So now all of a sudden you're running a whole department or residency program. I'm not, I'm not running the whole department. <laughs> you're not running a department. No, no, no. But... No, yeah. So I, w- I was just faculty over there. I didn't have, a, have any, any specific title. Uh, and then uh, had the opportunity in 2016 to come over as assistant program director for a year. And then, and then everything worked out. And um, Ron Lindsay, our chairman, was gracious enough to allow me to, to become the program director in 2017. And it's been, uh, once again, one more facet. Interestingly enough, you know, when you, when you look in an academic setting, there aren't a lot of general orthopedists hanging around anymore. Um, and, 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 and I think when you're a general guy and you, and you don't do a tremendous, uh, even though the research opportunities are available, I'm not a big research guy, I'm a clinician. And I, I think when you're a clinician and you're a general guy in an academic set, center, I think you sort of got two things that you can, one, two things do. One is to, is to, to be a good surgeon, but the other is to be, go on the education side, because okay? you have the three pillars of, uh, of uh, academic setting is going to be research. Uh, service and education. If I ain't doing research and I'm doing some service, you got to have two of those three pillars to work. So education was the natural side for me to sort of gravitate towards uh, other than just being the guy that just uh, is, you know, doing cases every day. What are some of the, the, some of the challenges you've had as the program director? Challenges, Um, you know, I don't know where you want me to start. (laughs) (laughs) What challenges today have you had? (laughs) So, so the, the big thing, uh, like everything else, is personnel, right? Mm-hmm. All comes down to personnel. And probably the number one thing that makes your residency program uh, work are the residents in your program. And so f- trying having the ability to get residents and your people that want to be in your program that, that, that fit um, and that will you know, be, come out and be well-trained and, uh, and are trainable are the biggest things to do. On top of that is... is Obviously, you have to have faculty that are engaged and that want to be uh, want to be there and want to teach um, and want to be in that setting. And you know, there's a lot of places and there's a lot of folks that have been in places for a long time that get entrenched and you know maybe aren't as uh, as interested in in teaching and education as some others. So I think that, I think having the right mix is important in the faculty that want to be engaged. And one of the one of the things that I think I'm proud about the most about this program is is the fact that you and uh, Dr. Lindemann and even Dr. Summers and you know have 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 signed on, even if you're only here for three years, um, and decide that you want to you know go burn up the world somewhere else. Having young, engaging faculty that trained here that think it's uh, to think enough of the program to come back, I think, is a great uh, a great predictor of future outcomes. I think there's been a lot of positive momentum in the program since you've been here, so it's been it's been pretty good. Um, when you're in terms of selecting residents, what are important things you look for? And this year is a little different, obviously, because we don't have away rotators. We don't have in-person interviews. Uh, but what are some important things that you look for? You know, it, it, that is a great question. And the answer is I, there's so many things that uh, it, it would, it's very hard to define. The first thing you look for, it's not what you look for. It's what you, what you don't want to have. So the first thing you look for is a personality disorder. Now that's a little hard. I feel like all of us have that. They they, they come in all times. They come in all times too. Yeah, pick pick your disorder. It's like it's like picking from a bowl. It's just one after the other. 
as long as you don't have an access to disorder, that's probably the big. Right? So, so if you don't know what an access to disorder is, that's the first. <laughs> so so you got to look. You got to look for those because you know, uh, gosh, it, when it comes down to it, if you look at all the applicants, probably, you know, probably um, we we looked at our pool. We had 500 applicants, and we went. I went yeah. through going through like 300. Uh, 300 uh, out of those 500, and out of those, about 140 are people that, based on on paper, would could come here tomorrow and work. So that's the hard part. Is there's so many good applicants, it's uh, you know you have it's uh, it's difficult to call through them. There and a lot of folks have this you know have sort of the same story. But ultimately, um, I think you know it's hard, uh, especially with the fact that you know we're having outside rotators a lot coming in. So that that used to really help. You could get to know somebody rather than just uh, see him here for 15 minute interviews. So the dance, once again, a long, a long uh, sort of drawn out, drawn out uh, of, of answer of, uh, I'm not sure. Everybody, every faculty is a little bit different on what they look yeah. for. The researchers are gonna look for a research guru. I'm gonna look for a clinical, someone that I think has good clinicals and a good letter recommendation. At the end of the day, uh, we want somebody that, uh, that wants to be here and that is trainable and that doesn't have a personality disorder. Yep. You you mentioned fit before. What do you what do you mean by fit? How does someone fit into a program? So every every program has a different milieu or gestalt, I would say. Um, uh, you know, one of the things is interesting about Galveston. I didn't realize how diverse this place was until I got down here. Oh yeah. Uh, and it is it is uh, every walk of life uh, known to mankind uh, in a good way. And yeah. so diversity, it, I think, actually fits down here. And I'm not saying diversity in other places doesn't, but it, it's definitely the Texas Gulf Coast and being here is is a diverse population. So, um, you know, if you go to some other programs, you may be the it may be something different. Um, and then I think the other thing is uh, once again um, we we like to have little uh, we like to have very variable life experiences in our folks, right? So if someone was a major in in, in um, philosophy, that may be a good thing, right? Uh, or or finance or something. You don't have to be a, everybody doesn't have to be a biology major like I was, uh, you know. So it's like a little bit of diversity there. It goes a long way too. And just having having diverse interests as well, you know, um, whatever that for whatever that is. So um, it's hard to explain until you read it on the paper. And once you put personal statement, letters of recommendation, pull that all up together along with their ARIS application, um, and then the, the last thing you do is you look at their picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the first thing you do it's the last thing you that's do that's the last thing you do <laughs> then you're not biased then you look at the picture you go oh my god no I, way well i i take your picture and i put it on everyone's face so i'm, I'm unbiased so just uh, like i did when i was studying for my my written boards i had that notebook with your picture on it so. <laughs> <laughs> uh no it's it's a, such a that once again we have such a great applicant pool that we're, we have we have, it's sort of tough because we have such a great applicant pool to pull from, uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many orthopedic slots that are available. So we, you know, we got 15 applicants in, I think from, from our own program here on, you know, on top of everything else. So it's, it's going to be a tough year for the, for the, for the medical students, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about using cutoffs? Like, like step one cutoffs? Like, I mean, obviously, obviously I'm not asking what the cutoff is, but what do you think about the process? Like, do you think that using a cutoff you miss a few diamonds in the rough that you know might fall through that that filter you do but you also uh, weed out a lot of charcoal yeah right so so the answer to that is is that we have a we have a relative cutoff that we use here in galveston but but we still look 
uh, at those folks that have less than what we ideally would like for a step one score, mm-hmm. as long as they've improved on their step two score. Gotcha. Right? So, so you can lock, you can have lots of paradigms in, in how you review those things. And you're right. There's some people that are not going to ever score above a 220 mm-hmm. on a, uh, on, on a intro on, on that, you know, standardized test, but are going to be fantastic residents. Yeah. And I can think of three or four right now at the top of my head in this program that have that same process. And, you know, we're going to interview them because they're going to, because they're, they're, they're really good. And they're going to be really good at what they do. So you got to pick, pick, you know, pick all that with a grain of salt, but it, once again, like everything else, it at least gives you a little benchmark of where to know. Cause if you have nobody with no scores, mm-hmm. then you have no idea. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's transition into, cause step one is becoming pass fail. Yep, it is. So that's, so there's going to be a period of time where you have some applicants who have a step one and some who yep. do not. Yep. And how do we, how do we approach that going forward? I, I, I'm going to approach this forward as if, is if uh, maybe you want to take a step two and give us a score. So at least have, some have some benchmark. So, yeah. And it's like what we say here is that, and when people take a step one and they, they do a 260 and they don't take a step two because they're afraid they're going to do less or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, for me, it's a, it's a matter of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's sort of a, a matter of personal pride. If you're, you know, if you don't take a step two, but you did really well in your step one, it makes me wonder why you didn't take a, take a step two, right? So are you, I, are you not going to scrub that extra case just because you did one good case? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, I think it's helpful to have as many, as many parameters and variables as you can when you look at a patient's application, a patient, a person's application, I think it's helpful for that. So it's just one more, it, once again, just, it's one more, one more thing to look at. What about, think, uh, what about yeah, letters of recommendation? What about what? Letters of recommendation going Letters of recommendation, I think are probably huge. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the tough part is, uh, is uh, they all, a lot of them, once again, sound the same. Yeah. So the space, this person's in the top one third and, uh, or get, you know, yada, yada, such, 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 such. So letters are big. But well, they, uh, they tried to standardize them recently, right? They did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'd probably say about 80% of the letters that came across this year have been standardized. So the mm-hmm. CORD Council of Research Develop, or uh, Residency Directors uh, has this AOA standardized letter where you check the box of, you know, yeah. uh, zero to hundred percent. And there's usually a paragraph or two afterwards that you can put anything extra that you would like. And I, I think it's a, a great idea. You know, because otherwise, once again, it's all over the board. For somebody, it's the best medical student ever. Uh, maybe another one that's uh, that's uh, average. So, mm-hmm. yeah. One thing, one thing that's nice too about about this process, it's everyone seems to have pretty good letters. But if you're able to read multiple applicants who have letters written by the same person, you can you can actually tease out differences. So even though one person's letter may say, you know, very good medical student, another person's letter. From the same author it could say exceptional medical student it's just small wordings that really seem to make a difference and i read all the letters from all the students at at our school and all the ones written by you dr foreman i'm like hmm. yeah there's definite definite differences in, in some letters versus others so you can you can tease out a lot from letters i think oh i think so too and you know there's, there's some certain certain uh uh you know code phrases and things would be an excellent yeah. fit for your program <laughs> not mine yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that kind of thing i mean you're like you're like oh my god we're okay oh, would okay. serve you very well <laughs> yeah we'll we'll do very well in another program that's not a good yep. thing yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah interesting so i guess we have a universal uh, offer day coming up and then Yep. Um, we sent out our offers and depending on how many responses we get, we have the opportunity to send out 
offers to other other people to fill those spots. So how many offers do we get to send out? You know, because we're we're interviewing sixty some spots, right? We uh, we typically interview sixty four uh, uh, applicants for five five slots. Five slots. And we so, send out exactly sixty four offers, or do we send out? We, more? we send out we send out uh, we send out sixty four to start with, and then we right. see what our response rate is, and then we pull from the from the rest. I was just looking at that today. Um, on our uh, all, I've got about hundred and forty people on our list that are potentially people that we would uh, uh, we would send out an offer to interview. So uh, we've got a, a tremendous amount of, uh, and you know, some of those obviously aren't going to aren't going to interview here because they're going to be interviewing somewhere else. Yada yada yada. Some people just you know um, apply because they want to apply to lots of places because I'm not sure why. But ultimately, I think there's yeah, we, there's there's uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, applicants that uh, once you go through, I think once again we'll have we'll have uh, we, I've never had the problem of not filling up our applicant um, interview slots. Absolutely. And then those will go in. Uh, so those will go in the twentieth. We we submit those on the twentieth, I believe, and then I believe the twenty third is when the, all the uh, medical students are going to respond yes or no. And at that point, then if we need to, we'll send out we'll send out additional invitations. It's coming up pretty soon. Um, so time really flies with this. And, and before you know it, we'll be doing our interviews. So you, know, you and I have been working on kind of behind the scenes interview prep uh, with some mock meetings. So what's kind of the process that we've been doing to get ready for this? Yeah, well, luckily we've got a, a, a program coordinator that's pretty good on Zoom. So um, she's setting all that up along with Dr. Chen, who's our, uh, our uh, ex-officio, uh, non-unofficial um, Facebook, Twitter, Zoom, <laughs> yada, yada, yada guy. He's our IT guy. He's our IT guy. Technical support. Oh, God. Yeah, he's technical support. <laughs> tech, tech, and we call him Emperor Chen for that reason. <laughs> with that in Is mind, that, uh, yeah, so we've been doing virtual Zooms. Uh, and um, and th actually, this coming Wednesday, we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing with all the faculty. So uh, we'll have all the residents available, and then all the faculty, and we'll be doing we'll be doing essentially one minute one minute Zoom meetings just to make sure everything's ready to go. Absolutely. What do you, so you you kind of touched on this earlier, and it sounded like you weren't too much of a fan of people sending out mass applications to a bunch of places, like well, applying it, to know, every possible program. Well, you know what it does is it hurts. What it does is it hurts the the folks that are that don't have that stellar application, right? Right. So if you've got a big medical school class of fifteen, and eight of the fifteen are, are extremely good, and the other eight are so so, and everybody sends out the mass number, the people are going to get the get the uh, responses to apply are going to be you know or, or the to interview are going to be the top eight. So right. which leads which leaves the bottom eight sort of, sort of, you know, in a, in a bind because they may have gotten an interview otherwise. So I think, it, I think, you know, the, the uh, AOA court has also suggested, strongly suggested that, that they limit the number of applications. Um, you know, they haven't done that. They haven't, they haven't, haven't set that up formally, but I think it really, I think it really uh, is a, a detriment to the folks that work really hard, but don't quite, you know, they don't have quite that step one or step two score, or maybe, you know, letter of recommendation says they're above average, but they're not above above average or exceptional. Mm -hmm. so I think it makes so, it tough for the folks that they're struggling. So I, I see that point of it. Um, and I think like, I think you're right. If they set up a mandatory limit on the number of applications, that would change everything, right? But until until they do, I mean, you, you still got to apply to as many as you can. I mean, you got to look out for yourself first, right? I mean, you can't kind of have that socialist kind of mindset, sure. right? 
I you know. I, I, and once again, I think at some point there'll be an algorithm which will which will come out and say, okay, you know, if you're you have a uh, this score and this here, then you've got a ninety two percent chance. Right. Of matching, uh, I'm maybe, surprised that sound out already. Yeah, you know, maybe you don't need more than fifteen, you know, twenty yeah. instead of uh, you know, one hundred and fifty or whatever. What about uh, what are your thoughts about limiting the number of interviews someone could accept? So if someone's got a stellar application and they have time to go on 25 interviews, but realistically, they only need 10 interviews to guarantee a match. You yes. know, what about limiting that? Well, once again, that, that, that's, uh, you know, that's, those are the things that are, uh, are not necessarily in the control of residency directors. So right. that's something that comes from the, from the medical school population and those people applying and maybe the AAMC and Harris and, and those guys, that's where that needs to come in. And, and once again, um, I, I'm a firm believer in uh, capitalism. So uh, uh, it, right now, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, eat or be eaten, right? Yep. So if you're, if you're, you're that stellar person, you want to send out 20 and interview in 20, I guess that's your, that's, you know, that's your prerogative. Uh, yeah. When I did, when I was a medical student, uh, I, uh, I interviewed at 15, I think I sent maybe 20 out, interviewed at 15, 10, uh, 12, 13 places. Um, and it wasn't because it was anything great. It was that I drove to eight of, I drove to the majority of them, put them all in a row because mm -hmm. I was trying to be cost effective. Didn't fly to a single one, um, but uh, that you know that was that was back in the day. So, and then I of course uh, you know you don't don't be surprised also that uh, you know when when it comes to matching, the the uh, the medical student actually has the advantage, right? So the medical student can rank wherever they want to go as one through twenty. And uh, the programs can 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 rank what, who they would like, but at the end of the day, if we rank you at number one, and you rank us at, at twenty, and you get down to twenty, you know, then uh, that's you know you have the the medical student certainly has the advantage on that side. It's always funny that they, you know one of the things that the people talk about is oh my god how low did you go on your rank list, you know this year compared to last year, and that's one of the questions that we have to fill out every year for the ACGME. Oh really? I'm not sure why because we only rank yeah. people that come here. Yeah, I don't rank. We you know we don't rank people. If we if there's a consensus that we don't we, we don't want someone here, they just don't get on the list. Yeah. So, so but but it's a huge thing. And some people say, oh, we got our top ten. We uh, we only had to go down to ten. Well, maybe you rank people that you knew were going to come there. Yep. There's definitely some game so playing. Maybe maybe putting in an outlier from you know somewhere where you go. Okay, you're from uh, Boston and you're coming to Galveston. Do you really want to come to Galveston? Well, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, so the, all those things are taken into account when you when you put in a rank list. Let's transition to to talking about developing residents for a second. So, you know, a resident comes in. You know, how how do you make an initial assessment on on the resident, and um, as they progress through the years, what things can you do to kind of shift them to where where you want them to be? Kind of a vague question, but what are your thoughts on developing residents? Yeah, that is a that is a vague question. Yeah. Um, well, it starts as, it starts an intern, right? So the first thing you do is you get assigned to a faculty advisor or faculty mentor that can monitor your progress quarterly. So there's someone that you meet with quarterly that checks on your case logs and make sure you're doing all the professionalism things that you need to do. You make sure there's once again, hopefully that you selected somebody that wants to learn that doesn't have a personality disorder. Uh, that usually comes out in the first or second year. And that makes it difficult for the other three years when they get down. So having a faculty a men mentor that follows you closely, and then um, and then following your you know following your evaluation. So you know the interns get evaluated every four weeks. So as an intern, I get you know we they come across they get evaluations. You're on the 
you're on the plastic service, I get an evaluation. If you're on general surgery, I get an evaluation. So we can follow those very closely. And then the interning exam as an, you know, as an intern as well, just to get a baseline of where you're at with regards to your orthopedic fund of knowledge. Other thing is didactics and obviously participation and keep an idea track of, of all, the, uh, all the folks that are participating, all the ones that aren't. Uh, so that's the first year. And, you know, we have a six year, you know, sort of nice six months of other services, six months of orthopedics. So it's a pretty well-balanced transitional year. And then, and then two, uh, same, same thing. It's just sort of, you know, keeping an eye on, on where people are at. And you get a sense to know that too, because you wrote, you know, as an intern, you're going to rotate through the day's float service. You're going to be in the operating room eventually with me or, or, or one of my partners, same thing with the twos and, and threes. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll identify the strugglers or the stragglers at an early age, people that, that are having difficulty and identify those and try to try to help those folks um, uh, along because really once if you get to a, as a P, if you get to the th PG3 level or above and you're not really sort of knowing what you're doing, that makes for a very difficult last couple of years. So try to identify those patients, uh, the, those, those residents early in the process. They could and be patients. I help. It could be patients. <laughs> What's that? It could be. In any event, but that's that's in a nutshell is what we do. Well, let's talk about those trouble cases because I mean we know people who have, like we talk we joke about the personality disorders, but we legitimately know people who have been through the residency program that have had personality disorders. Yes. And how do you? How, they're going to sneak through, right? You can't you can't be perfect. You know you can't bat a thousand picking residents. So once you have one, what? what steps can you take to kind of guide them through the five years and hopefully keep it well, five years and get them safe? Yeah. Surgeons and well, hopefully uh, one of the, probably the biggest thing for those folks is engagement with their peers, right? So you've got 24 other residents in that program and you're all one big family and you've got to have commitment between the other, other residents to step up and help that. It's so much more important for the residents to help each other than for a faculty member to try to help. It comes across a lot smoother. So I think, first of all, you have to have a camaraderie as best you can and work through those issues. That's probably the number one thing. And then when we do identify something as whether it's a, a substance abuse or some, or, or some tr even trouble at home, trouble with uh, anger management, what are the things, um, there is a, there's a UTEP program here that uh, actually do a good job over at the GMA office with the psychiatrist and counselors and those kind of things. So those 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 folks that get identified, um, if you can't uh, to take care of it locally with the, in the family, then you you have them work with the with those people, and um, it seems to work pretty well. There's always going to be somebody that 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 gets out that you you know that change their you know change their uh, stripes uh, for for a year or two and then get back to being their baseline. Um, and, you know, tiger never changes the stripes, but you can you can bleach it though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know things you think here's the thing so things you can't change in people and that's why you try to you try to avoid um picking people with those disorders to start with because once again it may, it's going to be hard for them to get through residency much 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 less the rest of their of their life yeah. as a surgeon yeah. which, which can be an extremely stressful job for some people uh and and not without without you know re returning back to their their bad habits or whatever those were so yeah yeah, I was I telling that I was, you know, uh, Fred Corley over in San Antonio, we were talking about joke about, about picking residents. And he said, you know, um, even Jesus got it wrong once. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, 
something we something we talked about or we did talk about a lot in residency that we just kind of brushed off at least i brushed off a lot was burnout right but i think burnout and mental well-being and all that kind of stuff it doesn't necessarily show in everyone right away and uh, i think you have some residents or some people that will go through and they'll kind of put on a tough face and kind of seem okay on the on the front front end of things but inside it's kind of you know eating away at them have you seen that a lot well, um, I would say that the amount of resident burnout is no different than the amount of faculty burnout. And, yeah. you know, we all have different pressures on what to do. As residents, you, you're pulled lots of different ways. You have lots of bosses and you got to learn and you got to also provide service. Uh, you, you know, for, for the department, all those things. So I think it can be it can be stressful. And I think the same thing with faculty, you know, being in different locations, having having a mandated RVU target, uh, having, you know, uh, lots of other issues as well. Right. COVID and all those things are really difficult for everybody right now. I think that puts a lot of additional strain on on everyone. But yes, you, it, you can certainly identify it. And, and uh, you know, we have a we, for better or for worse, we do have a GME wellness uh, curriculum that we have here, and we have we have a actually mandatory curriculum. Some of us, some of which is better than others. I think some is very good, but uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to once again identifying those patients, or the, those uh, residents that you worry about, and hopefully engaging their peers to and to work through that process. You know, we have quarterly town town hall meetings with the residents to discuss everything. Myself and Dr. Our chairman. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully some of those issues, uh, like not having an ortho workroom or working on that or, or having trouble with the emergency room docs that are making you come down and stick needles and everything when they should yeah. be doing it or doing their job. All those things, at least the logistical aspects of it is what part of my job is try to ameliorate those things and yeah. make it simple to do your job, which is to learn. But it's, it's always, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things, the more you talk about it, the more you, the, the, it's sort of like prostate cancer, the more you talk about it, the more you realize that everybody has yeah. it, but nobody dies with it. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so, so here's my thing with burnout and this might get me in trouble, but I don't really care because I don't have that many bosses above me right now. So right. I don't care if they get me in trouble, whatever. Um, resident burnout it's going to happen, right? And we, we talked about ways to decrease resident burnout, decrease the stuff that causes resident burnout. But I think the shift should be not, not decreasing the sources of burnout, but rather increasing our strategies to manage the burnout instead. Because yeah, you could take away the stresses of residency. You could tell, you know, yell at the ER doctors for not tapping a knee. But guess what? My first consult as an attending was to go tap a knee because the ER doctor wasn't comfortable doing it, right? And I can't yell at them because I'm new to the hospital and I don't want to be that guy and lose, you know, my reputation in the hospital. So I go do it with a smile on my face and I take the consult and I cash it and I go home. Great. But it's not like your stresses end in residency. It's not like you graduate to become a, you know, a faculty or an attending. And then all of a sudden things are peachy and rainbows. You have, it's, you know, it's same thing, different, different job. You're always going to have the stress. There's always going to be someone above you hounding you, making you do stuff you don't want to do. Uh, I, I think teaching, teaching how to better manage burnout is a better route because the burnout doesn't end. It just changes form as you get out. 
that's my. I opinion. think that that's a great point. And you know, when I when I used to in my previous life doing other things, one of the, one of the things we used to say that mental toughness is essential for success. Yeah. And mental yeah. toughness is not something you're born with; it's something you develop. Right. Right. And uh, however however you do that uh, is helpful. Certainly. And yeah. I think part of it is just doing it long enough to the point where you know how to, you know how to compartmentalize those boxes. So when your last case on Friday didn't go as good as you'd like, and you've got the weekend to think about it, yep. you, instead of hitting the, instead of hitting the bottle, you, you know, you, you put that, you lock that little, that, that little case in the key in the back corner of your mm -hmm. closet. And then you go have dinner with your wife. Yeah. And you can worry about it back on Monday when it comes back to doing that stuff. But that part of that is just experience and time. But it is a, it's a learned process. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I told Jay this, I think I've said it on this podcast before too, but all those little inconveniences and residency that piss a lot of us off, like going to do a consult you don't want to do, or, you know, dealing with not having the right equipment in the OR, all that stuff, dealing with in residency is actually a pretty good time to do it because yeah. it's going to happen when you're in attending, you know, unless... Yeah. You know, it, it, even if you're like Jay and you go back to where you trained and people know you and know how you trained, you're still going to have times where you're not going to have the right stuff. You're not going to have, you know, the perfect setup for your case and you have to improvise with what you have. Like, I don't have bone foams where I am. I, you know, I got to learn how to build tower blanket towers and, you know, all that kind of stuff or ma manipulate the bed to make things work. Or, you know, my radiology techs are horrible up here. No offense to them, but they're all fresh. So I got to learn, you know, how to teach them how to take a right image. So they're not taking six x-rays to show me the hip and a hip fracture and, yep. you know, giving me sarcoma. Well, so, uh, so yeah, I agree. I would, what I would say is, is it this, you're going to have the, all that, no matter where you work. Yeah. And the, the, once again, you're never going to get, ever get rid of it all. Yeah. So, um, but, but you can, you can sort of cut down on the ones that, you know, the calls at two o'clock at night to come ask. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. Kind of and, and, you know, it, and that's the quality of life because, you know, they, they call you at 2 a.m. and you could have been sleeping. That's yep. one thing too. So, so I think, I think decreasing the amount of, of all the bullshit is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you're still going to get plenty regardless of how much you try to decrease it. Yeah. It never ends. <laughs> the road goes on forever and the party never ends <laughs> yep all right well one one more story from you dr foreman let's let's all hear about your purple heart purple <laughs> heart what are you talking that. about <laughs> uh, you're just so loving yeah that, that's what i mean just, just your purple heart your character <laughs> yeah most most people say i have a black heart but uh, <laughs> i call it purple that's fine now i was in the army reserves back in i actually i I um, started in 1996 when I was a third year resident, but I took a stipend for three years called the Specialized Training Re Residency Assistance Program. So I owed him six years uh, uh, for the three years that I took a stipend. And, and, and then uh, 1998, joined the, joined the 396 Combat Sport Hospital in Fort Vancouver. And then I was transferred to the 915 Ford Surgical Team in Fort Vancouver up in Washington. I would drive up there on weekends once a month to do the drill and kind of stuff. And um and anyway, bottom line is at the end of the right, at, right when the um, Operation Enduring and Iraqi Freedom started, we our Ford surgical team got tagged to go over to Iraq for six months. So we actually spent three months in uh, Fort Lewis and then for three to four, actually, I guess about four months in country um, serving with the uh, covering the basically the medical assets for the for the uh, the fourth, the third brigade of the fourth infantry division out of Texas. So. We, we just traveled with them everywhere. They went, we went, they got shot. We patched them up and um, happened that one, one evening we were enjoying uh, 
Join, uh, join July the 3rd, actually the night before July 4th. And um, we were in Camp Balad and uh, they, people would come around the perimeter and would shoot off mortars and one just happened to land on our area of operations. So there we were 20 of us, 20 of us there, 10 had major surgery. I, I had just had a shrapnel wound to the hand. I call it my, uh, my John Kerry purple heart, but ultimately, uh, yeah, that's what happened. So it, it, uh, it, looking back on it, it was interesting to, to be in, uh, you know, be overseas and do that. It's just one more, one more thing to look at and I really appreciate what you have here. So the good news is, is that, uh, because of that, uh, I do get free parking at the airport. So <laughs> nice. I, I figured that over the course of my lifetime, yeah. the amount of money that it cost me to be away from my pri private practice for six months, it'll pretty break even. Yeah. <laughs> Getting off speeding tickets too, right? Yeah. You know, the nice thing, you know, one of the things about, about being, uh, you know, previous, uh, uh, you know, um, Oh, reserves in active duty and whatnot. Is it, you know, we, we have, uh, we've had two or three uh, military residents rotate through as well. We're not military, but are going to be in the military. So we have two currently. And then Corey Janney, of course, was foot and ankle guy who's now uh, with the Navy out in San Diego. So uh, Dr. Felice is also uh, our hand surgeon was an active, actually active army for a while. So I think we have a, I think we understand those applicants that that uh, have a tendency to going to do a health profession scholarship or, mm -hmm. or military scholarship after or have some, have some commitments or obligations after their residency. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Go ahead, Mo. No, I was going to say before, before we end it, there's two things um, that I took from your teachings and I'm using it in practice and it saves me like either headaches or my own personal anguish. One is calling patients the day after surgery and just chatting with them about, you know, the surgery and how they're doing. Because I, I noticed when I first started, I didn't do that, right? And if there was a problem, they would try to get in touch with, you know, me, but it goes through answering services. And I don't hear about it basically until their two-week post-op appointment. But once I started doing it, I, one, either I know that they're doing well, so it kind of puts my mind at ease. And two, if they are having problems, it's stuff that I can address right off the bat. And they, you know, it, it helps them out and keeps them, keeps them happy, I guess is, is a good way to put it. So that's one thing I think that, you know, I, I, I use that you taught that was really, really good. And then two, um, knowing when good is good enough, I think is helpful. And being in an academic setting for six years, you don't really see that side of it because you're, you're taught to basically strive for perfection with every little thing. And sometimes at the detriment to, uh, you know, either OR time or anesthesia time, uh, stuff that's not going to make, you know, a huge difference, maybe like one or two points on an outcome measure, if that, but it's not going to make a, you know, a difference in the grand scheme of things. And you're keeping them under for an extra, you know, however much time it takes to get that one fragment perfectly reduced when, you know, as long as you get the general alignment, right, it'll be just fine. So especially, you know, being on my own up here, I think that's, that's been really helpful. Just knowing what to accept and what not to accept. And yep. uh, yeah, those, those are my two points. One of the, uh, one of the seven deadly sins, right? Pride. Yeah. And when we get, we, we get to the point in the operating room, we want, want that x-ray to look perfect yep. without, without changing somebody's outcome and having an extra hour, half an hour tourniquet time. So I think that's just a, a matter of, of, uh, of experience and, and learning what's good enough. And I agree. That's something hard to know, something yeah. hard to teach, teach uh, 
uh, I always sort of, sort of joke around and, and I'm, some of my partners get pissed at me when I say it, but <laughs> most of the orthopedic things, surgery that you do, unless you're doing some giant pelvis, you should be able to do in two hours or less. Mm-hmm. And if it's taking more than two hours and you're either doing the wrong surgery or, uh, or it's just a really complicated surgery. But I just always tell my scrub tech at two hours and I was in private practice to, to tap me on the shoulder and say, Dr. Foreman has been two hours. And, you know, when you get in those, those tough cases like that, it's a wake up call. You go, Oh, mm-hmm. And, and you, you adjust fire accordingly, as they would say in the army. With regards to calling your patients the night of or the morning of, that's not that's something that I got from one of my mentors, Fred G. Corley. And he used to always, always ask the next day if you talk to the patient. And you'd say, yes, Dr. Corley, I talked to the patient. And he'd go, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? What, what, when did you call them? And you're okay, Dr. Corley, I forgot. <laughs> But talking, giving your patient a call uh, the day of, if you're doing outpatient surgery, that evening after dinner, before they go to bed or in the morning, um, it does exactly what you described. First of all, it's good customer service. Two, it, it puts out the fire that evening. Someone has nausea and they need a little, little Zofran. That's great. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, it's just, it's a win-win for everybody. And it saves you a lot of hassle as well the next day or that three o'clock phone call saying, hey. I got nausea. What, what can I do when you, we could have taken care of it ahead of time? So yeah. I'll, I won't take credit that, but I'll give, I'll give that to my mentor, Fred Corley. I would say uh, the most important thing I've learned is uh, just the attitude of, of lifelong learning. You know, here you are, you know, 10, 20 years in, I won't ask exactly how, how many years in, but you still learn something every day. I think at least you try to. So I think those, uh, that's a great habit to have. I, I would tell you that, uh, that um, you know, that comes, that comes easy when you're in an academic setting like this. It's harder in private practice. And uh, I would say that for, for everybody that I think one of the, if I could sum it up the best with, with, my, with my sort of perspective of what I do, I'm a PGY 27. Yeah. All right. And I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm learning just like you guys are. Uh, every day as well. And hopefully, uh, you know, I, I always say I learned something and I, you know, something else has to come out of my brain so it goes out the other side, but I always learn something. I may forget the next day. Even if you're relearning. Exactly. Even if you're, so, the key right, to don't repetition. Yep. Exactly. All right. Dr. Foreman, what's your favorite bone? You operate all over the body. You must have a favorite bone. It must exist in the foot. I'd imagine. <laughs> so but... <laughs> my favorite bone. I don't have a favorite bone. Anything but spine. No spine. That's fair. That's fair. All the bones. All the bones. As my as my uh, as my email my my personal email says BBMFIX. Bone broke me fix. I don't care where it is as long as, as, long as it ain't in the spine. <laughs> that's the answer you get from a general orthopedist. Anybody? All, All right. right well, thanks for your time, Dr. Foreman. I'll see you next week. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. So. I'm sure right. I will. Yep. Good to see you again. Yep. Right. Thanks for coming on. Working on those two millimeter screws. I am. Uh, constant <laughs> learning. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys All right. have a good evening. Thanks, Dr. Foreman. Have a good evening. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you, Dr. Foreman, for giving us an hour of your time. Hope you guys enjoyed that podcast and hope it was enlightening for you, especially for our applicants. Wish you guys luck on your current applications and process and hope this guys help this helps you guys in some way so if you guys like what we're doing please do us a favor leave us five stars on your favorite podcasting platform if you want to catch any of our old episodes you can do so at our website orthotalkpod.com and if you want to get in touch with us you could do so uh, on our twitter handle at orthotalkpod or you can go ahead and email us the orthopodcast at gmail.com uh, i hope you guys are in, ha- having a good winter and good luck with your application cycle 
and thank you guys for the opportunity.